Welcome, everybody, to this week's B-side of Dead Punnett Society. This is the patron exclusive available for patrons of DPS. Moving on to today's program, I'm recording this little intro out on the go. That's why it sounds like crap. I promise the rest of the episode will not be sounding this badly. Uh, this week's B-side is just a little bit of a change of pace. It's just kind of fun. It's a laid-back chat between myself and Nicholas Kiersey. Uh, Nick is a professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, down there on the Texas-Mexico border. He is a member of DSA. He's a, a political scientist and a longtime political thinker. He's also the host of a podcast called Fully Automated. It's a podcast project that came out of the Occupy um, IR theory movement, if you will, a project that now seems a little bit quaint given the vast politicization of well society but especially like academics right but say 10 some odd years ago in the midst of occupy we were trying to get academics to take politics seriously and now some of the most engaged participants in this movement are themselves academics um of course we're not going to win this thing by establishing the soviets of university professors but um they can be a good resource from time to time so this following B-side is a little fly-on-the-wall chat that I had with Nick about all things. Uh, Nick Kiersey, if you can tell by his, at this point now, somewhat watered-down accent, is he's an Irishman. Uh, so we talk about the Irish political situation that is unfolding. There's been an, uh, a stunning, remarkable reversal in the political fortunes of, of Sinn Féin and some of the left progressive electoral parties out there in Ireland, and it's really exciting. Remains to be seen what's going to happen. But we talk about the Irish situation. We talk about the uh, uh, Brexit situation. Uh, we kind of harp and riff for quite some time about trying to connect the prospects in Ireland with Labour's recent setbacks and the Bernie Sanders project. And then at the very end, this thing goes almost two hours or maybe right at two hours. At the very end, Nick and I share some really intimate, in detailed, confidential <laughs> candid thoughts about the state of the left in the United States and abroad and, and what needs to happen if we're going to be able to face down some of the very, very challenging um, situations that are on the very near horizon. Talking about DSA, talking about political organization, talking about strategy, theory, hell, even a little dialectics, folks. We're going to do the dialectical thing. Yeah. Yeah, the little dialectical thing where you make a little signal with your fingers and you kind of crisscross them. It's dialectical, right? It's dialectic. That, that way you, they, people know that it's like it's both and, right? Anyway, enough out of me. Enjoy this little fly on the wall chat that I have with Nick Kiersey. I think it's a good one. Patrons, thanks again for all your support. If you're not a patron, what are you thinking? Take your enthusiasm, your passion for politics and support independent left media. We here on DPS, uh, I think straddle a very important line. We are situated in a niche wherein we take democratic socialist politics very, very seriously, but we also take that kind of more pragmatic, mainstream, progressive edge of politics seriously as well, even if we oftentimes disagree with them. Um, I had Nomiki Constant on the show earlier this week. She is a progressive political operator of the best sort. I had on Eric Levitz. He is a progressive journalist of the best sort. Um, I have a number of progressives on. I disagree with them about a lot of things when it comes to deep-seated theoretical and strategic elements, but it's absolutely essential that the democratic socialist left remain in conversation with these people so that we can develop, grow, and then evolve into whatever comes next. So I hope you all enjoy this. 
hell, almost two-hour chat that I had with Nick Kiersey. The interesting thing uh, I noticed with you, and I don't, I noticed you kind of hesitating a couple of times in sort of various online fora after the election. You know, I certainly would have quite immediately found myself in the camp with Lee Jones and Phil after the election about the sort of narrative of what went wrong. I mean, I, I, I do think that it was the decision to change perspective and uh, change position on the referendum that actually really hurt Labour. I, you know, I, I don't really see another satisfactory reason for why they could have done so well in 2017 and so poorly this time around. I think it killed them. And I, I notice a lot of, you know, well-meaning left-wing commentators. I even had some on my show like like Owen Worth trying to sort of hum and haw a little bit and say, well, it's more complex. Labour's been in secular decline for a long time. You know, the reasons are more entrenched. I'm just like, come on. They had it in the palm of their hands in 2017. They were on it. They owned it. You know, they were they had their Bernie Sanders moment, right? They were so far ahead. There was no doubt that they would have kept they would have killed it if they'd kept doing what they were doing. But I guess some factions and momentum got to them at the convention floor, uh, conference floor, as they call it, uh, last summer. And I just struggle to see another good explanation of what happened in the election. Maybe maybe you have a different account. Yeah, I I, I mean. What the th where maybe what you you interpreted as, as in, it's funny and now I feel like you are interviewing me. Uh, Told you. <laughs> maybe what you interpret as uh, I don't know if ambivalence is the right word or hesitance or, or reluctance or kind of um, online in that moment was that I, I was I was always very no longer a social scientist never really was I just always want to be social scientist in many ways huh. uh, I don't work with data sets I don't like charts and graphs the, they confuse me I'm not I'm not visually like uh, adept capable yeah. in that way so I'm not adept at that but what I was what I was mostly thinking about in that moment where I sort of really found some of the discourse around some of the full Brexit people uh, repellent is that I think they were I think they were being overly careless about their interpretation of various data sets, or they were making sweeping conclusions in the absence of data. And so I'll, I'll give it to you. So I think like... In, in the absence of historical, even just basic historical conjecture, you know? Well, that too, that too. But I mean, in, in your claim to say like, it seems obvious that it had to have been the Brexit maneuvers that right. lost labor in the election. Well, mm -hmm. I, I just, I, it, it's possible. But I guess my re my rebuttal is that is to say like, I'm open to the possibility, but show me some data. Show me some data that voters in, uh, you know, certain areas, because they're just, oh, we lost, you know, we lost the regions. We lost the, you know, the north, the, well, the north, you know, um, but sorry, sorry, Scotsman, no, the Scottish, to the Scottish out there. It's not the north. No, I think it's under, I think it's an understood uh, position. I, um, I think that's, no one would necessarily object to you saying that. Right. And so the, the, the question then is, show me some data, show me the data sets about people, uh, specific uh, people who changed their vote from, you know, from Corbyn to, to whoever, whomever the Tories or, because it just, to me, the, the, if we don't have any data that I've seen, at least that, 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 that definitively demonstrates that there was this swing, you know, for example, there was a, there was a demonstrable swing in the, in, in the American political scene from people who voted for Obama the first time to people who ended up voting for Trump.
Yeah. That, that there's a, there's an empirically, uh, you know, um, verifiable. I mean, also just anecdotally, I know many, many of like the, the angry divorced dads kind of, uh, sect of society. My, my ex's, uh, father being one of them and many other people who have come across in my like region of my, of, of the U S who voted for Obama the first time around, not enthusiastically. They didn't watch the inauguration with a tear in their eye and, you know, mm-hmm. crossing their heart and hugging their, you know, their babies and stuff like, like a lot of other progressives and certainly people of color did in, in, in 2008 and rightfully so at the time before Obama sold us all out. But, you know, there was this, there's this demonstrable swing from first time Obama voters into the second, uh, into the second term. And, and then of course they were just take overtaken by this kind of reactionary race-based animosity, resentment, anti-politics, which is what, you know, which is, there's a variant of that going on, of course, um, in Great Britain, but. Well, this was the, the, um, article by Jeremy Gilbert, no? The, the cent, it was the centrist dads who lost it. I think it's a fascinating article. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen, I've seen him make, I've heard him rather make that argument, um, yeah mostly on, on uh podcast, but I, I don't know that it's seen that article, but, but that's, I mean, th- there's an archetype there for sure. It but lost I, because he, he um sort of has some data to back this up that what happened was that labor lost its leave supporting uh voters and lost them in droves. Well, hang on a minute. Um, seeing as recording, I can actually, I think I have it right here. He says, I know this was <clears throat> the more surprising and more numerically significant demographic change was in fact the number of voters in their early 40s and early 50s who supported Labour in 2017 and whose votes went in large numbers to Liberal Democrats, SNP and Greens in 2019. Yes, I know this will sound strange, if all you've heard since 10 p.m. on December 12th is that Labour's vote collapsed because it lost its leave supporting voters, right? That's that's the kind of um, the 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 operative hypothesis, but it's a fallacy. It's part of the truth, but less than half. If you want to look at the best statistical breakdowns and analysis that I know of, then they are here. Why exactly younger generation X voters decided to back Corbyn? in 2017 and not in 2019 is an issue that has barely been discussed at all. Given the understandable obsession of commentators with the increasingly immovable Toryism of property pensioners and with the striking leftward shift of younger voters. But there's a good argument that in fact the single most significant demographic, there's a word I can't pronounce here, Pacephological? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Um, but the single most significant Gilbert's demographic... overly brainy. It's almost not fair how smart the yeah, guy is. Um, uh, apparently, it means the study of elections and trends in voting. And I'm a political scientist. I never knew that before. Um, was the desertion of the centrist dads who reluctantly backed Corbyn in 2017 for the Lib Dems and the Greens again, and also a number of them abstained. The most plausible and obvious explanation is that these are centrist-leaning uh, voters whose 20s and 30s were spent in the halcyon days of new labor, who were the very last cohort to benefit from the long property bubble, whose children are not yet old enough for the full implications of the resultant housing crisis to have dawned on them, heavily pro-Remain and heavily influenced by mainstream legacy media. They backed Corbyn. So they're, you know, it's, it's so strange, right? Like, it's it, and it's a pro- very provocative argument for people like me and and also for the bunga people you know that 
these are people who were, you know, because we having already sort of committed to this idea that, oh, uh, especially in the north, it was the uh, Brexit crowd who left, right? You know, um, that there were actually a whole bunch of people who were may have actually been turned off, not by Brexit's decision to remain, even though they were themselves remainers, but by their petty Generation X politics. Yeah, right. So, the yeah. So the, Sorry, arg- so the argument is that then like 2017 was a, was the 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 sweep uh, the Corbyn sweep in 2017 well near sweep was due to like a, a moment of anti 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 politics anti politics in in a sense that that yeah. that the mainstream was what pushed uh, voters into the arms of Corbyn. I mean I think and I think that's right. I think like I think here's the here's my problem and, and look I, I'd have to think a lot more about this and I haven't had a lot of energy. And yeah. I'm no longer an academic and I have other things to do. I have to, you know, occupy and busy myself to make money. So I don't get to think about this stuff. And quite frankly, I'm just a little bit emotionally and psychologically burned out over the past year of stuff. So I haven't given this as much thought as maybe I would have in previous years. But I'm also just so burned. I mean, it's like the Grexit and the you know, it's every single like crack up on the left is just this massive traumatic like collective trauma that you just have to undergo. And this time around, I just didn't have the stomach for it maybe and i just withdrew faster than maybe i would have from the hot take economy and all the rest of it and i just sort of you know didn't put myself out there but w- one of the things that i think i would love to think a little bit more about and i'd have to do a lot of reading here because i'm th- i'm sort of spouting off i'm sort of just <laughs> shooting from the hip sure i think we need to look i think we need to dig a little bit deeper about what what brexit represents and it's like well okay well ooh, real profound insight there adam no shit okay but let's okay so the problem isn't 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 you know we're thinking like ah ha ha so we're going to make all of these empirical and theoretical and strategic and and political uh, politically political theory based arguments about why Brexit is you know the real democratic solution and you know what why the EU and the troika is so bad and and all the rest of it and it's like that's not the way that people think Brexit for the average person was a reaction to the world as it was in, in that moment right um so like an embrace of Corbyn in that moment was a moment of anti-politics to say that the status quo is untenable. We don't like this. We need something different. Let's 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 go for Corbyn. Yeah. And then in the next time around, when nothing's fundamentally changed and the status quo, you know, is is what it was. And uh, Corbyn's later Labor Party failed to radically transform itself, not just society, but also mostly most of all itself. And, they, you know, these these middle class dads were sitting in the same armchair that they sat in in 2017 with the same, you know, money and the same problems and the same concerns and the same issues as before. I mean, they just they swept right back in the, in the other direction. And God bless Bernie Sanders <laughs> because he's the only thing that's preventing this this pendulum swing in the United States right now because he promises something radically different and he has a serious plan to do that. I don't know what could happen afterwards, but I mean, it's it's a it's a cautionary tale. But does that make sense? And I think like the no, problem, it does, the problem with it, the left is that we immediately jump to these super, you know, intense, theoretical, um, intellectualized, you know, um, defenses of our positions and our claims about why things happened. And in the, and the th- reality, people don't operate with that level of, of sophistication. And this is why, like, to me, Brexit's just a. It's just a 
I'm not sure what it is, but it, it's a, uh, I mean, it's, I almost call it a distraction. It's, it's more than, a, it's more than that. That's, that's. Well, just what blows me away is the kind of bad faith, um, kind of, um, needling, uh, that we can see online from people who were hardcore remainers. Aha, you see, you know, um, they'll say, uh, labor was right to abandon its pro Brexit base because if it didn't do that, it would have been abandoned by, uh, the, uh, remainers, right? Um, so, so labor was, you know, made the right decision because if it, you know, it, it was going, it was going to lose anyway, it was going to lose either the exiters or the remainers, depending on what it did at conference and there's more remainers. So it stands to reason that the logical thing to do was to adjust to the, the, the second referendum position. But what we see in this article from Jeremy Gilbert is Probably something I think the data seems to support it. He's got data to back it up um, that, in fact, labor didn't get stabbed in the back. It got stabbed in the front. Right. Um, it did make the move to support the second referendum. But the so-called centrist ads didn't care. They actually got what they want from labor, but they abandoned labor because of its aggressive class based politics. And I just, you know, you you show this argument to people online. I'm, I could name some names. I've got receipts, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. I'm too much of a gentleman. But, you know, uh, Irish academics that work in Maynooth University um, talking about you, uh, you know who you are. But, um, you know, it's very clear that, that, you know, they can't even get their heads around this. It just doesn't even compute for them. So so Labour lost twice. It lost two groups of voters. It It lost the exit voters in the north uh in the in the heartland right the, the the red heartland or whatever it's called and it lost uh in 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 the urban areas as well with this particular age group and uh gender i think like the most devastating discovery that anyone on the left can make is that um the single most devastating discovery that one can make being a leftist is that people just don't like your like your politics very much yeah. Does that make sense? Because we're yeah. always we're always casting various <laughs> populations in the mold of of this, you know, super receptive, like they're our people, right? They're our they're the masses, which in you know, which, right. which indicates that they are our masses, that they are uh we are casting them in the role of the receptive, enthusiastic, oppressed, um, you know, collective collectivity that is that is structurally, you know, yada, yada, or all the rest of, we've all read the manifesto structurally capable of overturning the system as it exists. And then the most devastating thing to find in various moments in, in, in this election was one of them in, in a, in a qualified sense to, to find that they're just, Hey, they're like the, what do the books say? Like, they're just not, they're just not that into you. <laughs> and then the centrist then have, ads are not into you. They're just not that into you. And that's fine. But like then, then, you know, I mean, I think then this raises much bigger questions about like, what is it about, you know, what was it about labor's messaging? What was it about the manifesto? One thing I'm really sympathetic to is a lot of the criticisms that are coming out about the manifesto. I've seen Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, you know, uh, criticize the, the most recent manifesto. I've Absolutely. Seen I've heard James too, yeah. Meadway rec uh, criticized the most recent manifesto. And he wrote the first one. You know, by saying, you know, what the fuck was, and I've, I've said this on a previous show, what the fuck was the four-day work week doing in this Labor Party manifesto? 
it is just not actionable. And it opens you up to all of these, you know, um, attacks as to, oh, you guys are unhinged utopians or you guys, uh, hell, you know, I, I can't. None I'm of working. these things are going to get implemented in four years. Right. Well, uh, also, hey, I'm working six theory. days a week and I can't make ends meet. Now you want me to work four? You must be out of your fucking mind, Jack. You know, this is the way that people think. That's the people sitting in their armchairs in front of the television. Sorry, in front of the telly. <laughs> no, but they were in a great place when they were um, early on in the campaign, when they were rolling out um, publicly owned Internet, uh, you know, coast to coast for free. You know, that I think that was um, those sorts of policies did generate uh, shifts in support yeah. for sure, <laughs> especially in those labor heartland areas where, yeah. uh, you know, no doubt. Frankly, if you live in England and you are faced with the way privatization has mangled, uh, you know, infrastructure in that country, everything from your bus service to your trains to the phone lines, you know, um, these kinds of things really matter. I mean, they were so you know, getting the railway sorted out, getting the phone line sorted out, getting things like Internet sorted out. Those those policies really matter to ordinary people. Yeah. Well, but we have a pro they had a problem there that we're going to have it here. As well, that no matter how – I mean, first thing, before I say that, I just want to say there's something about a collective national mood. And a collective national mood can 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 shift at the drop of a dime. Yeah. You can't – and I – you know, for me to be saying something, this guy, this kind of like staunch materialist, you know, whatever, to be talking about a collective national mood, it's like, Jesus, Adam, are you trying out for like uh, the op-ed page in the New York Times? But like it's a thing. And, and and I don't know that I don't know that it's quantifiable um, or or you know that you can even really capture it. But there's something about a national mood, and we've all felt it. Anybody who's been on the left or who's been studying politics for any amount of time has has witnessed these shifts. And and you almost have to stop and really kind of get out of your break out of your day to day. You're kind of the the news cycle and the, the the madness of the debates and the the riffs and so on to just sit back and reflect and think, wow, like. Something about the national mood in 2017 in Britain was I think that's far right. different from the one now. I can give you a major example of a, a shift in national mood. What's up? Um, I can give you a huge example of a shift in the national mood. Uh, if you give me uh, five minutes here. Uh, we just had a major election in Ireland. And yeah. I cannot, I cannot explain what happened there. I, I I don't. I've I've talked with a couple of people now. I even had a, a great scholar, Irish-based scholar, Irish-based, Ireland-based scholar, Colin Coulter, just on the show there um, earlier this week. This concludes your free teaser of this week's B-Side. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today to hear the rest of this episode and to double your DPS pleasure each week. 